What a saviour we serve. Praise God. Trust you have your Bibles there this morning and if you do please turn with me to the book of 1 Peter and chapter 1. The book of 1 Peter and chapter 1 and we did touch on this passage on Easter Friday and as I was studying and preparing for the Easter Friday message my heart was very much captivated by this section of the first epistle of Peter and so we're going to Uh, go back over some familiar territory this morning about redemption, but we're going to get to the resurrection as well this morning. So 1 Peter and chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 13 down to 21 to get the context, and uh, we'll see how much we can get through this morning, Um, and uh, we want to uh, uh, just look at uh, this matter of redemption, uh, revelation and resurrection, that's the theme this morning, redemption, revelation and then resurrection, and if we have time, we might even touch on the theme of a bit of revival uh, that we need in, in, in response to all of that in verse 13 to 17. But let's read the scriptures before us. The Bible reads in First Peter 1 and verse 13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... Not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear." For as much, here's the incentive, here's the motivation. Uh, The Apostle Peter has just given all these uh, commands, these exhortations to living a holy and a godly life. And I want you to see now that what he speaks about in relation to our redemption uh, is in connection with all of that. For as much, because of, he's saying, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead, there's the resurrection, and gave him glory. Why? That your faith and hope might be in God that your faith and hope might be in God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for uh, how you have already blessed our hearts through the uh, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, Lord. We thank you for uh, godly music and edifying uh, music, Lord, uh, and the words that speak to our hearts. We pray now, Lord, uh, especially though, that you would bless this time of preaching. We thank you that you have ordained preaching. Lord, it is your chosen vehicle for this church age to proclaim the truth and to herald the truth, and to see sinners come to a saving knowledge of yourself. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen the speaker to preach the gospel with clarity, with power, with freshness this morning. Lord, for those who are already saved, may they not 
uh, feel dull and dry in the hearing of the gospel, but may their hearts be thrilled as they think about their own redemption, their own salvation, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you would also just uh, fill our hearts with faith and hope as we uh, consider the resurrection this morning as well. And then, Lord, how we are to live as pilgrims in light of that. We've been bought with a price uh, and we are to live, Lord, therefore differently. We're to be strangers and pilgrims on this earth, to live a godly life, a holy life, a, dis- a different life and a distinct life because you have purchased us with your own blood. So bless us now, we pray. We ask for the anointing of the Spirit of God to rest upon these moments together now, that the Word of God in all its fullness and power would be uh, set loose this morning. And we ask these things in and through the name of the Lord Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Apostle Peter writes to uh, believers scattered throughout the Roman Empire and he writes to encourage and exhort them to practical Christian living in the midst of their trials and tests. Trials and tests are a key theme of this epistle. And uh, this section of chapter 1 contains the first main exhortations or the first practical lessons of the epistle. And Peter really exhorts the believers here to pursue a walk of holiness. And then he motivates them to obedience by appealing to their experience of redemption. So uh, we are, we're going to really focus in because it's the Easter weekend on redemption and on the resurrection of Christ and those verses in particular. But I don't want you to miss uh, the impact and the power of what Peter is doing. He's writing to believers and he's reminding them of redemption. He's reminding them that they have been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ and therefore they should be living differently. And so it's important that we uh, we don't go through the Easter weekend and maybe, yes, remember the gospel and remember the truth of salvation without receiving a personal challenge that we are supposed to live differently in light of that. We are supposed to live as strangers and pilgrims in this earth, not being entangled with the affairs of this life, but living our lives to the glory of God. And so to aid us to study uh, this passage this morning, I'm just going to give you uh, three words and we'll see if we'll get to the fourth. If not, we'll carry on next Sunday night with what's left, okay? The fragments that remain that nothing be lost. All right, so the first word I want you to think about this morning is the word redemption. And we talked about this on Friday, but I would like to go back over it again uh, briefly for those who may have missed it and for those who may need it this morning, uh, redemption. By the way, I hope as a Christian, you never get tired of hearing that word redemption. I hope you never get tired and you never get over the fact that God reached down into your lost estate, that God reached down into your dark existence and rescued you. That should always thrill you, shouldn't it, as a Christian? So in these verses here, Paul, uh, sorry, Peter portrays the, 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 our redemption and how it was secured for us. So let's just consider uh, and recap a little bit here. Let's consider the past before our redemption, what we were redeemed from. Okay, we need to understand that our past or our condition, uh, that means we need redemption. Well, the Bible tells us very clearly here, or very clearly describes for us life without Christ or life before we came to know Christ. It says, for as much as you know, verse 18, that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. So here, uh, Peter reminds them of their past before they were redeemed. And it's an accurate description of each one of us before we know Christ. And maybe it describes where you are this morning. Maybe this describes you. And don't take offence to it, you need to understand that you are lost, you need to understand your need, you need to understand why Jesus died on the cross. 
Many people today know the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross, but many people do not know why Jesus Christ died on the cross. The reason Jesus Christ died on the cross was to rescue you from your condition. So we have the past before redemption. Without Christ, all we have are, number one, empty lives. We have the word vain or the words vain conversation there. That word vain means empty. It means without purpose. It means futile. The word conversation is a word that we use today mainly to talk about discussions between each other. But understand in Old English, understand back in, in, uh, in the, at the time when the King James was translated, that conversation meant more than just a verbal discussion. The word conversation here refers to our lifestyle. It refers to our whole uh, behaviour, our, our, our existence. And so Peter is reminding us here that before Christ, all we have is an empty life. An empty life, isn't that an accurate description of our lives before we come to know Christ? Our lives are empty, our lives have no true purpose and no true meaning. Oh yes, obviously you know, people try and find fulfilment in life, don't they? They try and find joy in life and I'm not going to lie to you, the things of this world can provide temporary satisfaction. You can enjoy the Aussie lifestyle. And by the way, we have one of the most privileged lifestyles in the entire world. I was listening to a commentator the other day, he said, talking in light of the election, he said the Australian voters are some of the most pampered and spoilt voters in the world. We live in one of the richest countries and in some ways that can do us a disservice because we can have a false sense of fulfilment. We can feel I'm enjoying my retirement, I'm enjoying my savings, I'm enjoying the good life and the pleasures that the things this world has to offer and because of that we can falsely assume that our lives have meaning when in reality those things do not bring lasting joy or lasting peace. And by the way, I hope you can see by the condition in the world today that the things of this life that you may feel are fulfilling for you are very fragile and can be quickly taken away. They can be quickly removed. That's why the Bible calls it a vain conversation, an empty lifestyle, an empty state of existence. That's the reality this morning. Why? Because you're not like the animals. You're not just another, you're not just an accident of evolution. God created you with a spirit and with the capacity to know God. And until you come to know God, there will always be an emptiness deep down inside of you. There will always be a lack of purpose. There will always be a lack of fulfillment. You don't really know what it means to live until you come to know Christ, who is the life. So we had empty lives. Erroneous traditions. Uh, Peter refers to traditions that have been received from uh, the fathers, and that's the nature of tradition. A, a tradition, isn't it? A tradition is something that is passed down from generation to generation. But may I just remind you this morning that what you need is not tradi- the traditions of men, but the truth that is found in Jesus Christ. Traditions will not solve the need of your heart. Religion will not solve the need of your heart. Only Jesus Christ can fill that need in your heart. So he also describes these as vain, doesn't he? He says, a vain conversation received by tradition. So implied there is that the tradition, tradition is vain also. Not only did we have these erroneous traditions, but we also had an enslaved existence. Because the word redeemed 
while for us as Christians it has mainly a theological, uh, you know, sort of implication, understand that when Peter wrote this epistle, the word redeemed uh, was a word that they would understand very well. Because it is a word that had to do with the emancipation or the freeing of slaves. Uh, Slavery is not a new thing. By the way, with all the discussion today about slavery in the past, did you know there are more slaves in the world today than there were in America back a couple of hundred years ago? Now, we're not justifying past slavery. I'm just saying with all the discussion around slavery, why no discussion on all the sex trafficking and all the child trafficking and all the the people who are enslaved today? But that's beside the point for a moment. The word redemption has to do with the freeing of a slave. And there are about 50 million slaves in the Roman Empire during the time where Pete, when Peter was writing. So they were very familiar with this. In fact, as I understand it, the ancient city of Rome, about half the population of Rome were, were slaves. And so they understood redemption was when someone who had the wealth and the means paid the ransom price for you, paid in silver and gold so that you could be set free. So the whole concept of redemption is one being set free because someone else has paid the price. And we were enslaved, weren't we? And we are enslaved without Christ. We're dominated by Satan's spirit. Ephesians 2.1 tells us that, that's, that the devil is the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. That doesn't mean that every person who's lost is demon-possessed. But I will say this, if you don't have Christ in your life, Satan has a lot of access to your life. He's the spirit that now works not upon the children of disobedience, but in the children of disobedience. That's a ghastly thought, isn't it? He works in you and he has tremendous access to your life and because of that, we are also blinded by his deceit. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, In whom the God of this world, little g God, that's referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of them that believe not. Why Why is Satan so concerned to blind your mind? Why is Satan so concerned to keep your mind blind to the truth? Because he is a murderer because he is a liar, because he is a deceiver, and Satan wants you to go to hell. That's true. That's why you need redemption. You need someone who has the power to set you free, someone who can pay the price to set you free. Consider the price of our redemption. What are we redeemed by? Well, we see firstly what cannot redeem the sinner. Do you notice how the Bible is very clear that there is something here that cannot redeem us, that cannot set us free from sin and Satan? It says there in verse 18, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. So in verse 18, he first talks about what does not redeem us. What does not have the power to set us free from sin and from Satan. And there are two things in this verse that cannot set you or me free from sin. First one, treasure cannot redeem us. Treasure cannot redeem us. The Bible says we're not redeemed with corruptible, the word means perishable, that which is subject to decay, with corruptible things as silver and gold. No amount of money can purchase your soul. 
No amount of money can set you free from your sin or from Satan's bondage. You've got to understand that this morning. You say, what if you're the richest person in the world? Listen to me. If you could take, if it were possible, if you could take all of the world's riches and place them in a weighing scale on one side and then place your sin in the other, your sin will outweigh all that wealth well and truly. And it's very interesting because silver and gold was what could free a slave in the ancient world. Uh, In fact, the the reference here, as I understand it, is to the silver and gold coins that would be used in those kinds of transactions. And Paul is saying, look, you understand what redemption means. You've seen it there where someone goes and pays silver and gold to redeem a slave in the physical world. But he's saying, as Christians, you were not redeemed by silver and gold. There was no amount of treasure that could purchase your soul. The The only price that was sufficient to pay for the debt of our sin was the blood of Jesus Christ. So treasure can't redeem us, neither can tradition redeem us. No amount of treasure, no amount of money, no amount of wealth can buy you back and make you free. And by the way, we need to be set free because we're sinners. And and no amount of money could pay the sin debt. And we do have a great sin debt before God, don't we? For all have sinned, Romans 3.23, and come short of the glory of God. But tradition can't redeem us. But that's where a lot of people's hopes are today, aren't, aren't there? Even sadly, many people who go to church on Easter, they're trust, trusting in their, in their traditions. They're trusting in the priests standing before them. They're trusting uh, maybe in the statues there before them. They're trusting in, in all of the traditions of their church to get them to heaven. Could I just remind you again that tradition never, never got anybody to heaven. And you do not need the traditions of religion, you need the truth that is in Jesus Christ, because Jesus said, I am the way, what? The truth and the life. So we see what cannot redeem the sinner. Please understand that. It doesn't matter. You can be the world's richest person. And sometimes people who are very rich feel that, they can, that their money can do everything for them. Could I just say this? It's, it's amazing, isn't it? Death levels the rich and the poor. When it comes to your time to die, it doesn't matter if you are a multi-billionaire, all that money in the bank will not stop you from dying. All that money in the bank won't stop you from facing God and you're going to need to understand this morning that there is someone that you need to come into contact with in your life in order to go to heaven. So what cannot redeem the the, the sinner, traditional treasure? What can redeem the sinner? Look at verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ. Here's the the blessed truth, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So what can redeem the sinner? Well, there's only one thing that can redeem you. There's only one thing that can set you free. There's only one thing that can erase your sin debt. And that's not religion. It's not a church. It's not confession to a priest, but it's the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't you thankful this morning for the blood of Christ? What can wash away my sin? Nothing, nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Consider the precious blood of Christ. It was precious blood. The word precious there means costly. It means uh, it has this idea of, of high value, that which is highly esteemed. And could I just remind you this morning that though salvation is free, it is not cheap. Yes, it is free. Being justified, says Romans, 
freely by his grace. Aren't you thankful that salvation is not something that is earned, it is something that is given as a gift. It is something that is received by faith. That's what the Bible teaches. It's not something you earn. You cannot earn your way to heaven. You can only come as a guilty sinner and receive a free pardon. But it was not cheap. Let us never forget that. We were bought with a price, says 1 Corinthians 6. Don't forget this morning that it cost God, his own son. Don't forget this morning that it cost Jesus Christ his own life's blood to secure your redemption. That tells me two things. It tells me something of the great love of God and it also tells me something of the seriousness of my sin. It tells me my sin is serious to God. If it took that to rescue me, It tells me my sin is serious before God because God couldn't accept anything else. God would not accept your, God would not accept anything but the blood of His own Son for our redemption. That tells me sin's serious. It also tells me how much God loves sinners because He was willing to bleed and die for you. Christ died for our sins. By the way, why wouldn't you want to become a Christian? Why wouldn't you want to receive forgiveness of sins? Why wouldn't you want such a saviour in your life? And by the way, is it any wonder that God will judge those who reject that offer? Is it any wonder that God will damn for eternity in a place called hell all those who reject his offer of salvation? Don't ever say that God is cruel. Don't ever say that God is unjust. Don't ever say that God is unfair. Come with me for a moment and see the bruised and battered son of God. See him bleeding. See him dying. And I'll show you a God who loved you enough to rescue you. And if you reject that offer of salvation then hellfire awaits. Precious blood, powerful blood, only the blood of Christ could save. Perfect blood. Why was it that the blood of Christ, why is it that the blood of Christ has such power? Well, it has such power because of who Christ is. Look at it there in verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a what? Lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus was the perfect lamb. You remember right from the back right back from the book of Genesis in Genesis chapter 3 we see blood sacrifice. Uh, you know, uh, um, innocent animals that were slain to provide a covering for Adam and Eve. And then trace that theme of the lamb, trace that theme of sacrifice right through the Old Testament. Remember how Isaac was going to be slain uh, on, uh, on, the, on the mountain there, but a ram caught in the thicket took his place. Remember the Levitical offerings and and all the lambs that were slain. These all pointed forward to Jesus Christ, the capital L Lamb of God, who would take away the sin of the world. And just like those lambs had to be very carefully selected and and, and checked over to make sure they didn't have any blemish, so Jesus Jesus Christ uh, demonstrated his sinlessness in his life. You know, if Jesus Christ was a sinner, his blood would have no power. Oh, it doesn't really matter you know, what you believe about Jesus Christ. I mean, after all, we don't really know if he was who he said he was, but I, but I still believe in Jesus. You believe another Jesus. 
And that Jesus has no power to save. The reason why Jesus Christ has the power to save you is because he is the perfect spotless lamb. In him is no sin. So we see redemption. Secondly, this morning, the second word is revelation. Look at verse 20. Who, speaking of Christ, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. See the word manifest there? It means to reveal. What is fascinating about this verse is Peter now takes us back into eternity past before the world began. And it'll send thrills through you to realise that the cross was not an accident. The cross was not an afterthought. The cross was not something that was kind of thought up, uh, you know, by God sometime during human history. This verse here, I don't know, I can't plumb the, the depths of its mysteries, but this is what the Bible reveals, that the cross was on the heart of the eternal God before the world even began. By the way, that should make you very secure in your salvation. Because your salvation, yes, it was fulfilled in time, in the fullness of time. But your salvation, the plan of salvation was formulated in the eternal heart of the eternal God way before time ever began. Just accept that by faith. And don't try and rationalise it into this heavy system of theology called Calvinism. I believe that's one of the major problems of Calvinism is they try and provide a rationalisation and some sort of systematisation of these truths. No, just accept them by faith. Don't try and rationalise it all and come up with some ghastly picture of some, uh, some ordained for, for hell from all eternity and some ordained for life from eternity. No, 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 just accept exactly what the Bible says and leave it there. I don't understand it. But I'll say this, my tiny mind is never going to understand and fully comprehend God. Will yours? Don't be surprised if there are things in the Bible where you just you, you say, that blows my mind. Because you and I are time-bound creatures. We don't understand. God is timeless. God lives and exists outside of time. In fact, God is the creator of time. So revelation, there are two aspects of Christ's nature here. The first looks back to his, pre, to, his orig, to his origin, way in eternity past, and then the second focuses on his appearance in history. So notice, therefore, there the foreordination of the Son. The word foreordain means to mark or to designate beforehand. It means, again, that God had already ordained that Jesus Christ would be the Lamb of God before the foundation of the world. As I said, the verse takes us back into the eternal heart of God, the source of our redemption. It reminds us that salvation was not an afterthought on the part of God, but rather was a part of his eternal wise plan. You know, there are a number of other verses that speak about this truth. Again, they'll blow your mind. The kingdom was prepared before the foundation of the world. Matthew 25, 34. Believers are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4. Believers' names are written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 7. And Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So this plan of redemption, Peter's showing us, this, this plan goes way back, right back into the eternal counsels of the Godhead, back there in eternity past. It blows our mind. We can't fully understand it. But, but, but God had made a plan for man's redemption. 
Then we notice the manifestation of the Son. He was revealed, says Peter, in these last times for you. Notice the period of Christ revealing in this last time. Galatians 4.4 refers to it as the fullness of time. Notice the purpose of of Christ revealing for you. Please don't miss the wonder of those two little words, for you. That eternal plan, who was it for? Why did God go to such lengths? Why did God come up with the plan of salvation? Why, did Jesus, why was Jesus Christ revealed in the fullness of time, born of a virgin, to live and to die and to rise again? Could I answer that in the words of, the, of, of Scripture here? He went through all of that for you. That's a wondrous thing. That's amazing. I hope, as if you're, you say, but I'm already saved. I know, but I hope that, that, that you get a sense of the wonder of this. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, was revealed in time, in these last days, says Peter, for you. Christ died for you. Christ loves you. God wants to save you. Third word this morning, resurrection. Look at verse 21. Who by him do believe in God. We're reminded there that Christ is the mediator, that it is through him that we exercise faith in God. He is the means of our salvation. He is the channel of our salvation. He is the mediator there. Who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory. Why? That your faith and hope might be in God. I said we'd get to the resurrection. Look at the God of Christ's resurrection. Here we see that the resurrection is attributed to God that raised him up from the dead. That is a clear reference to the Father. We believe in a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three but one. Again, another mystery that we can't fully understand. And it's very interesting in the Bible, you'll find that the resurrection is attributed to all three persons of the Godhead. It's attributed to the Son of God because Jesus said, destroy this temple, referring to his body, and in three days I will raise it up. In Romans 8, 11, it refers to the fact that the Spirit, it refers to the Spirit, capital S Spirit, the Spirit of God, which raised up Christ from the dead. And then we see the resurrection is attributed repeatedly, and that is the overwhelming emphasis of the New Testament, to the Father. I tell you what, that's a lot of power. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune God, all actively involved in raising up Christ from the dead. Aren't you thankful this morning that Jesus Christ is alive? By the way, that's why redemption is real. That's why salvation is real. That's why forgiveness of sins is real. You say, how do you know that's all real? Because Jesus rose from the dead. If if Jesus Christ was still in the grave, we have no forgiveness of sins. We have no hope. We have no future in heaven. You've got to come to terms with that. These, These apostate preachers out there today and these apostate priests that say, well, I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, but we can have some sort of mystical resurrection in our hearts and we can still be involved in Christianity. You are a liar and an imposter. You cannot have Christianity without the resurrection. And since it's resurrection morning, let's just remind ourselves of what took place. If you want to just read with me Luke chapter 24 and verse 1 to 8. Luke chapter 24. 
And verse 1 to 8, what victory words. Now upon the first day of the week, what day is that? Sunday. Very early in the morning they came under the sepulchre, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them, and they found the stone rolled away from the sepulchre. Aren't you thankful? The stone was rolled away, not to let Jesus out, but to show he was already gone. And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. You can keep searching for the body of Jesus of Nazareth in Israel. You will never find it because he's not there. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down to their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. He is risen. By the way, every Sunday commemorates that, not just Easter weekend. (laughs) That's the reason we meet on Sunday. It's the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It's the Lord's day. And therefore, every, every Sunday should be a day of encouragement for you. It should be a reminder to you that you serve not a dead Christ, but a Saviour who lives. That should encourage you this morning, downtrodden, disheartened Christian. Could I remind you this morning that we don't serve some dead system of religion. We don't serve some dead form of tradition. We serve a saviour who is risen. The resurrection is pivotal. In fact, it's the it's really the hinge upon which Christianity swings. It's the, it's, it's the linchpin. You take out the resurrection and you have no true saviour. You take away the resurrection and you've gutted the heart and soul of Christianity. And Paul confronts this very issue head on in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'm just going to touch on these verses because it's Easter Sunday, Easter resurrection morning here. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 20 Paul takes this whole issue head on and deals with it and goes through the implications. If Christ is not risen, well, this is what that means. Verse 12, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now look at the implications of that. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? Let's face this this morning, for though there, there are many people out there in the Christian world who claim that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, but we can still have Christianity. Oh, and keep bringing your money to my church and, 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 and pay for my retirement so I can sip my glass of wine and get fat. No, no resurrection means Christ is still dead. Think about that. If Jesus, How precious is Christ to you? If there's no resurrection... Christ is still dead. What a ghastly thought. No resurrection means the apostles' preaching is vain. Our preaching is vain. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, says verse 14. That means the apostles were liars. That means all their preaching about the gospel and forgiveness of sins was all empty. It was vain. No resurrection means our faith is empty and your faith is also vain, verse 14. No resurrection means the apostles were liars, verse 15. Yea, and we have found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. 
No resurrection means we are still in our sins, verse 16 and 17. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. That's pretty ghastly, isn't it? If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, you are still in your sin. Your sin remains. Your heart is still full of blackness and darkness. No resurrection means departed Christians have perished. Verse 18, then they also which have fallen asleep, Christian term for death there, in Christ are perished. All the hopes you had for saved loved ones that have passed on, all those hopes that you had for Christian friends that have passed on before you and died are all vain. It means that they've perished. It means there is no further existence for them if there be no resurrection. No resurrection means a life of misery and hopelessness. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. I wish every apostate lecturer at Bible colleges would read that. I wish every apostate minister would read that. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, we are of all men most miserable. Why? Because we have a vain hope. We're hopeless. Listen, if we're still in our sins, if Christ is not the risen Saviour, we are hopeless. Because I tell you right now, there's no hope like the gospel in any other religion. There's no assurance of forgiveness of sins in any other religion. You go and talk to people who've been in religions for decades even in their older age. Are you sure that when you die, you're going to heaven? I hope so. I'm not sure. There's no assurance because the only the only, uh, uh, the only uh, uh, I don't even like to call it a religion, but Christianity is the only faith that has a saviour. So Paul makes us stare this ugly possibility in the face. If there is no resurrection, and of course there was, then this is what that means. And I love how Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God in verse 20, it's like he's had enough of all of that. And he says, but now is Christ risen from the dead. (laughs) He did rise. He did rise. And that means, therefore, all those things that he's just discussed were true and are true. Because Jesus Christ did rise, that means Christ is alive. That means the apostles' preaching was true. That means that our faith is not in vain. That means that the apostles were not liars. And because of the resurrection, that means we are not still in our sins. That means departed Christians are in heaven. That means we don't have a life of misery and hopelessness, but joy and peace. So the whole of the Christian faith hinges on the truth of the resurrection. Have you thought about that? Take the resurrection out and every doctrine we believe and hold dear means nothing. Take the resurrection away, this book means nothing. Take the resurrection away and every element of the Christian faith becomes meaningless and crumbles. How do we know the word of God is true and trustworthy? Because Jesus rose from the dead. How do we know the Genesis account of creation is true? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. How do we know the Bible is historically accurate and trustworthy? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. 
How do we know all the claims of Christ are true? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. How do we know there is a heaven and a hell? Because Jesus rose from the dead. How do we know the virgin birth is real? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. How do we know that Christ is the only way to heaven? Because Jesus rose from the dead. How do we know the blood of Christ has the power to save from sin? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. How do we know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. How do we know that salvation from sin is real and possible? Because we're not offering you this morning some dead religious leader. We offer you a Saviour who is alive. He is alive. He is alive. How can we be sure that Jesus Christ will come again and split the sky as he has promised? Because he is alive. And because he's alive, he has the power to save you. He has the power to redeem you. He's alive. Discouraged Christian, Jesus lives. You say, I'm feeling discouraged today. My, my body is, broke, is breaking down or perhaps I'm going through a trial. You say, I'm discouraged. On this Easter weekend, I have family members that won't even speak to me or don't even want to speak to me. On this Easter weekend, my heart is heavy in the remembrance that some of my children don't know Christ as Saviour. Could I just say there is still cause for hope that, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? That should encourage you today. Why did he rise? That your faith and hope might be in God. Is it any wonder that after defending the truth of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul concludes that section of the epistle with these words of power and victory, 1 Corinthians 15, 15 to 58, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labour is not in vain in the Lord. Don't give up, Christian. Don't quit, Christian. Don't leave church, Christian. Don't stop serving Christ, Christian. Why? Because Jesus lives. Jesus Christ is alive. Don't give up. Keep going. Turn back to 1 Peter again. First Peter chapter 1. Verse 21, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead. Look at this, and gave him what? Glory. What glory was given to Christ in his resurrection? How Christ was glorified after going through the shame and the agony of the cross. What does Hebrews 12 say? He endured the cross despising the shame. Why? Because he, for the joy that was set before him. And what glory the Father gave to the Son on Resurrection Day and on Ascension Day. It's described in, in, in passages like Ephesians 1, 19-23, which says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. 
far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. We find that glory described in passages like Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father and gave him glory. By the way, you can never glorify the person of Jesus Christ too much. Is he glorified in your life? The glory of his resurrection. Notice then the goal of his resurrection. Verse 21, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory. Why? That your faith and hope might be in who? God. Well, that shouldn't be hard, should it? Since we have such a God. That's something that's concerned me. Of recent days, over the last couple of years, I see too many Christians putting a lot of faith in the government and not enough faith in God. The government is not your saviour. It's not my saviour. Now, it has its role to play. We understand it's a God-ordained institution. And we're all for sensible and reasonable, uh, the sensible and reasonable exercise of, of a God-given authority in civil matters. But could I just say, we need as Christians to get back to faith in the God who has resurrection power. Any God that can, I, I, I tell you what, a God that can raise someone from the dead is a God who has a lot of power. <laughs> and he's the God, isn't he? So this verse highlights God's, one of God's divine objectives in the resurrection as it relates to us as believers. He raised up Christ and gave him glory. Why? That your faith and hope might be in God. That was God's divine purpose, that your faith would be in God. What's faith? It's trust. Trust. Faith in God for salvation. You've got, you got to come by faith. You've got to come believing that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, that he, that he died on the cross and shed his blood for your sins. You've got to come in faith believing that he rose from the dead. You've got to come in faith believing that he will give the gift of eternal life to all those who will receive it. Turning in repentance to Christ, receiving his gift. But our faith needs to be in God, not only for our salvation, but for all our Christian lives. The, the, your, your salvation is just, that's just the starting point. The day you get saved, the day you receive Christ, that's just the beginning of a whole life of faith and trust in God. You know, I'm not trying to talk anybody down, but having visited the third world, you know, I sometimes wonder in our affluent society how much we have men and women of, of great faith. 
Seriously. We are so pampered and so spoiled. We have so many cushions around us. And I'll tell you, I don't know, sometimes when we look, if you're looking for great examples of great faith, it's not always found in the affluent churches of the West. You find it in the persecuted church. You find it in, in a place where people have nothing but God. And the, the, the danger is, in an environment of affluence, we can become what Revelation describes it as a Laodicean church a self, with a self-sufficient attitude that we have everything we need, I'm rich, increased with good and have need of nothing. Could I just say we may live in an affluent country but we don't have to live that way. By God's grace, we can be Philadelphian Christians in a Laodicean age. Christ was raised that your faith would be in God. Secondly, that your hope would be in God. Please understand, I'm I'm, I'm going to wrap up soon, hopefully, (laughs) that the word hope in the Bible, by the way, people can sit and and watch sport for an hour or two, but they complain about a one-hour sermon. Just just a reminder, okay, in case that gives me license to keep going. But the Christian hope is not a hope so hope. That's how we tend to use it, don't we? I hope, I hope I can pay that bill and it's, it's a vague possibility. <laughs> um, I, hope, I hope I'm going to get a pay rise. I, I hope that so-and-so will turn up on time, but she probably won't because she doesn't usually. Um, okay, I, I hope, I hope, I hope. No, no, no. In the Bible, please understand, a, a Christian's hope is built on certainty. It's not a hope-so-hope, but it's a no-so-hope. It's a hope that is built on assurance. It means I have absolute assurance that this is going to happen. That's why the rapture is called the blessed hope. It's not a vague possibility. It's a total, it's a total reality. It's going to happen and that gives me hope. You see, the Christian's hope is built on a firm foundation and that's what God wants you to have. In light of the resurrection, can't we see that? We should have hope in God and all that God has promised. Now, we don't have time to go back through verse 13 to 17. I, normally, we would, go, we would go sequentially through the, the section, but I, in a lot of Easter, I wanted to just focus, focus our spotlight here on these verses about Christ's redemption and his resurrection. But, but now, I just want to very briefly, and, and God willing, next Sunday night, I'll, I'll go through this in more detail because uh, I believe it'll be an encouragement for us. And, um, but I just want to touch on it so you, we leave you with this. As a Christian, you say, I'm saved already this morning. What does this all mean? Well, well, don't miss the connection between what Paul is saying, Peter, sorry, is saying here with what he has just commanded them. Because he says in verse 18, for as much as ye know, he's appealing to their knowledge of salvation to motivate them to take seriously what he has just said to them. He's appealing to the fact of their redemption, the fact that they've been purchased at great price to encourage them to live a certain way. And that's why I chose the fourth word, revival, because we, it would be a great thing, wouldn't it, if we experienced some spiritual revival on Easter weekend. Sometimes we just know all about, we, we, you know, it's so familiar to us. Yes, the cross, the blood that was shed, the empty tomb. But I'm telling you, if you let the truth of the cross and the empty tomb get a hold of you, you'll live differently as a Christian. 
You can't live the same way when you begin to realize I have been purchased at such high a, so, at so high a price. I've been purchased by the blood of God's dear Son, and therefore I am not my own. I've been bought with a price, and I am to glorify God in my body and my spirit, which are God's. So the Apostle Peter writes of the great truth of the believer's redemption in order to add further weight and authority to the preceding exhortations to godly living. And this indeed is the highest motive for holy living. How are we to live as Christians in this world, as redeemed ones? How are we to live as those who, who believe in the resurrection, those who have faith in God? Well, let me just touch on, on the points. You can just write them down and maybe go and meditate on them. We're to live as sober children, verse 13. We're to live as sober children. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind to be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How we need that today in a day that is so shallow-minded, in a day when Christendom has turned into a, a rock and roll, entertainment, theatre-style kind of Christianity. There's so much shallowness out there today. No, in light of the fact that we have been redeemed, we should gird up the loins of our mind. We should be sober children. We should be submissive children, verse 14, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to your, the former lusts in your ignorance. Salvation involves submission. You've got to obey the gospel. You've got to obey the, the command and the call to repent and to trust in Christ. And so salvation begins with submission and, it's, and, and it opens before us a whole life of submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And what's very clear here is Peter is saying we are not to fashion ourselves. We're not to allow our lives to be shaped and moulded uh, by our former lusts. How did you live before you were saved? Well, in the environment of ignorance, former lusts in your ignorance, in that place of spiritual ignorance and spiritual darkness, lust drove your life. It was your lust that shaped you, wasn't it? Your passionate desires for sinful things, whatever that might be, in all its different forms, that's what, that was what was the moulding influence in your life. Don't you see what Peter is saying? As redeemed Christians, we're not to allow those former lusts to be what shapes us and what moulds us. Let the word of God shape you. Allow God to shape and mould your life according to his truth. So many Christians today, sadly, are doing exactly the opposite to what Peter says. They're allowing their past life and the passions of their past life. Yes, they can even be saved, but they're allowing the, the old life, the old sinful life there, and the old desires to shape and mould them. Submissive children. Sanctified children, we have a call to holiness there, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Why? For as much as you know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. Don't you see the connection here? Peter says, I want you to be holy, I want you to live differently. Why? Because you were redeemed. Do you know if you're saved here this morning? Your life doesn't belong to you anymore. You say, oh, I don't like that. Well, what would you rather? Would you rather Jesus Christ have your life or the devil? That's not a, that's not a thing of bondage. I'll tell you what, to have the perfect God in control of my life is no bondage at all. 
a God who is, is light, a God who is totally pure, a God who cannot sin. I'd much rather have my life in the control of such a God than the Prince of Darkness and this sinful world to live holy lives and then separated children. Verse 17, and if you call on the Father, and he says, I, essentially, I assume you do, that's a feature of someone who's saved, they call on the Father in prayer, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, past the time of your, what's that word there? Sojourning here in fear. I love that picture of a sojourner. What is it? It's the picture of a pilgrim. That means that as Christians, we should be real careful about getting entangled with the affairs of this life. That house you own, that's not your permanent home. All the money in, that, all the money in your bank account or lack thereof. <laughs> so all the money, what are you talking about? That's not really your life, is it? I understand as Christians, we, ha- we can't isolate ourselves. God's left us here with a purpose to glorify him and to walk with him. We can't uh, shut ourselves off like monks from the rest of the world. We have to be in the world and, and, yet, and yet separated from it and walk that, that narrow path. But just don't get too tangled up with this world. You're a sojourner. It's a very interesting word. It comes from the Greek word para, uh, para, meaning alongside, and oikos, house. It speaks of someone who dwells alongside the house of another. In other words, you're a temporary resident. You don't belong here, really. You're just a traveller. You're just a passerby. You are a pilgrim. If there's something that needs to be recovered in Christianity today, it's the pilgrim mindset. That this world is not my home, as the song says. I'm just a what? passing through and therefore we're to lay up treasures in heaven but can I just say in love and, 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 I, and I have the same struggle too I see so many Christians and they're just living for here and now and their focus is on temporal things and it's exhibited in their lack of faithfulness to the local church their lack of service in the local church and they're just bound up and it's all about the job and it's all about the bills and it's all about making money and it's all about looking after ourselves and keeping ourselves comfortable and I'm not saying that all of that is necessarily wrong some of that has its proper place but could I remind you that soon this life will be over and only what is done for Christ will be of any lasting value and you are a pilgrim on a journey Live that way. You say, why should I live that way? There goes the preacher again. Listen, for as much as you know. No, no. You are a sojourner. Why? For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, received from a vain, what is it, vain conversation, they're received by tradition from your fathers, but with the, what? Precious blood of Christ. Maybe it's time to reevaluate the way we're living our lives. Wouldn't it be sad one day to stand before Christ and, and be saved and go to heaven and stand there with a saved heart but a wasted life. 
How Satan wants to get Christians to waste their lives. doesn't mean he can't take you to hell. If you're saved, you're saved for all eternity. I'm not questioning your eternal security. If you've been truly saved, there'll be some evidence of that and, and, and you're going to heaven. One day I'm not teaching work salvation here, but I'm saying if you're truly saved, don't waste your life. Don't waste it on the things of this life. Live for Christ. Because in the same epistle, in 1 Peter 2.11, he writes, Dearly beloved... I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Let's bow for prayer this morning. Redemption. Revelation. Christ came. Resurrection. Hopefully that might mean a touch of revival for you living differently. Don't forget, salvation is free, but what a high price was paid. With every head bowed, every eye closed, let me ask you this morning, have you been redeemed? Has there been a time in your life where you have come personally to Christ, realising that you're a sinner, realising that you're good life or whatever you might think there can't get you to heaven and turning from sin to Christ have received him as your saviour has there ever been a time in your life when you've done that if you can't answer that question with certainty may I suggest to you perhaps perhaps you don't know Christ as saviour yet In fact, if you haven't done that, you don't know Christ as Saviour on the authority of God's word. If you've never truly repented of your sin and received Christ's offer of salvation, then you're lost. And I say that in love because I don't want you to be lost. And God doesn't want you to be lost. And Jesus Christ wants to save you. Would there be anyone here this morning? It's Easter Sunday. Wouldn't it be wonderful if today would be the day where you personally received Christ as your Saviour? You took Christ as your Saviour. You accepted by faith, redemption. The price has been paid. I hope you've seen that this morning. He paid for your salvation with his own blood. He secured a home in heaven for you with his own blood if you will but receive it by faith. Would there be anyone this morning who would just like to raise their hand quietly and say, Pastor, I'd like to receive redemption this morning. I'd like to accept Christ as my saviour. Yes, thank you. Put your hand down. What I'd like to do is pray for you and then after service I'll, I'll take at the Bible and show you how you can know for sure that you're saved. Would there be anyone at all? I need that redemption. Christ, I can see from this morning's message that Christ's blood has paid the price for me and I want to receive that now. Would there be anyone at all? Would you just raise your hand quietly? I'm not going to call you out by name. I'm not going to seek to embarrass you, but I do want to give you an opportunity to receive Christ as your saviour this morning, to receive redemption. Forgiveness of sins. Anyone at all? Christian, how are you living? You say, yes, I'm redeemed. I know Christ is my saviour. I've I've turned from my sin to Christ. Could I ask you this question? How are you living in light of that? What kind of lifestyle are you living? Is it a holy, separated, sojourner kind of lifestyle, sober lifestyle? Maybe you could just acknowledge before the Lord, you don't have to raise your hand, but in your heart before the Lord, Lord, there's been some misplaced priorities in my life. I haven't been living that kind of life. I am redeemed, but I haven't been living the redeemed 
kind of life that your word describes. Forgive me for that, Lord. Help me to remove these idols and these obstacles out of my life. You respond in your heart as the Lord would have you there this morning. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your word. We pray for the hand that was raised. We pray for this one, Lord, that you would enable this individual to come through to an understanding of salvation. We pray if there be any others who do not yet know you as saviour, we pray that even in the quietness of their heart, right now they might reach out to you in faith and say, God, forgive me for my sins. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for shedding your blood as the remission of my sins. I believe you died in my place. You were buried and rose again. And I now receive your offer of salvation. I receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Come into my life, Lord. Be my saviour. May you pray that uh, in your heart if you have not yet done that. Lord, we thank you. We pray you'd help us as your people to live for you, to walk with you, we pray, to live the pilgrim life, and not to get too tangled up with the things of this world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.